Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze the important topics of the day and stick to the facts. We like to think of ourselves as the opposite of cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? Well, you know, it's going great. I'm feeling very heart healthy today. Heart happy. Also, my heart is feeling good. Are you it's ever beating. not happy? I mean, is that like a new story? You know, my um, wonderful college roommate, Heather, whom I adore, once said that my depressed was other people's perky. And <laughs> I think I think she was onto something. And that was when we were like 21 and it's only gotten worse. Someone wrote a book review of, of the comedy book that I did in 2012 and said that my prose was even chirpy. And I thought, <laughs> oh, God, it's like it's leaking everywhere. Um, so, yes, I, I do tend to be a. Uh, I lean on the side of happy. Um, but today on the pod, we're going to be talking about healthcare, which uh-huh. is why my heart is feeling healthy. And as you, I'm sure, know, um, because you clearly are a romantic, uh, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. It is. So that's what's making my heart happy. So right. my heart is healthy and happy. Do you have any big plans for Valentine's Day? Doesn't everybody have huge plans <laughs> for Valentine's Day? No, um, of course not, because it's not really a thing unless you are my 15 year old daughter, in which case it is Uh-oh. the only thing. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, this is the biggest. This is the biggest deal. We've had a like a preemptive sleepover to address you know, Valentine's Day and try and exorcise it because <laughs> there's there is no boy right now. Um, Ah. And, you know, I mean, she's a beautiful, brilliant and funny girl. So that could change in the next five to 10 minutes. But at this moment, there is no boy for Valentine's Day, which means we are at about like DEFCON 2. (laughs) Like we are we are just just shy from some sort of nuclear meltdown. Yeah. Uh, So tomorrow is going to be, I think, chock full of chocolate and trying to make a 15 year old feel as good about herself as I feel about her, which is pretty damn good. How about you? What are you doing? Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. 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 Godspeed. Uh, as you know, I mean, Valentine's Day uh, changes just practically when you are a parent. So we have a house full of four children mm-hmm. and we are in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, probably not any dates or, you know, any romantic night outs, but um I'm sure we'll do something nice as a family, have a nice dinner. And our kids love any reason to celebrate. So um, it'll be a fun day. Oh, that sounds good. Well, I mean, what do you mean they look for any reason to celebrate? Like, what does celebration look like with four children in the Eppert household on Valentine's Day? I mean, are you going to dress the baby up like Cupid? Oh, my God. You have to dress (laughs) the baby up like we're going to put this in the show notes. It's going to be Lawrence and Sarah's baby dressed as Cupid. But when I say like any reason, I mean, like President's Day, they want to have a celebration, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't it really doesn't matter the holiday. They just want to throw a party. You know, um, as we go grocery shopping throughout the year, and of course, like we only go once a week now because you can you really are not supposed to leave your house at all. Um, When Thanksgiving approached, I got sort of irrationally excited because the butter that is in the shape of a turkey was being sold. (laughs) And then very quickly, the butter in the shape of a Christmas tree 
was sold. And so now every time we go to the grocery store, my husband's like, I'm looking for the butter in the shape of Mount Rushmore for President's <laughs> Day, or I'm looking at the butter in the shape of a, you know, a shamrock or something. So I don't know. I think we should have more butters in the shapes of different things so that your kids can also like follow along, not just by the calendar, but by butter. If you are a young listener to Utterly Moderate, um, <laughs> these are the things you have to look forward to as you age. What shape will the butter be on my grocery trip today? And that is the excitement of Valentine's Day for old people. <laughs> it has, there is there is no excitement. There is no there's no passion. It's just butter. <laughs> and you know what? I'm actually pretty good with that. I really am. I don't have a problem with that. That's what sweatpants are for. <laughs> All right. Well, before this goes any further off the rails, uh, yeah, we should probably get started. So what do we got on tap today, Allie? Well, today is a fantastic pod. We are talking about universal health care with Cynthia Cox, who is the vice president of the Kaiser Family Foundation and the director for programs around um, the Affordable Care Act and other uh, health care Issues, And we are also joined by T.R. Reed. He is an author, a lecturer, and he has two books out. He's working on a third one. He has done a documentary. Um, the reason that Lawrence contacted T.R. is because he wrote a book called The Healing of America, which is specifically about this topic. And um, he also did a documentary that I believe Lawrence shows in his classes. Um, his most recent book is called A Fine Mess, and it's actually about comparative economies. So um, we are so lucky to be joined by both Cynthia and T.R. for this great conversation about universal health care. Now, very quickly, before we get started, TR, I believe you speak Japanese, correct? Could you say universal health care for us in Japanese? Uh, you can't say it in Japan because they don't understand the concept of people not having health coverage. Yes. <laughs> uh, I asked uh, people in Japan, why do you provide health care for everybody? And they say, why don't you? Uh, so... Universal health care is kind of like universal air or breathing. Of course, it's there. You know, uh, you know, we have a moral obligation to provide that. But Dani demo no egocedo, I guess, would be what it would be. That's why there's no American expression for I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I, for many years, I, I worked at a free clinic and one of my friends from the free clinic went to Sweden um, to stay there for a while. And when she came back and told me about her experience there, she, everyone would ask her what she does for her job. And she said, I work at a free clinic. And they would say, free clinic? What, what, what do you mean a free clinic? <laughs> Healthcare is free. <laughs> yep. It's just a clinic. <laughs> We should probably begin by talking about what universal health care actually is. Universal health care means everybody in the country can have access to high quality health care at a cost they can afford. Um, it doesn't have to mean any particular model. If you go around the world, all the other industrialized democracies in Western Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, all the other countries like us already provide universal health care, which means everyone in their country, citizens, tourists, uh, foreign correspondents like me, 
can get to a doctor when they need it or a hospital and can do it at a price they can afford. Um, there's only one industrialized nation that doesn't provide that, and that's the world's richest country, the United States of America. We currently have about 31 million people with no health insurance. Uh, we have about 70 million people who we call un underinsured, which means they're paying an insurance premium every month. But the requirements, for example, the deductible is so high that they don't go to the doctor. Um, what this leads to is higher costs, more administrative problems, and worse health. Uh, compared to the countries that do provide health care for everybody at reasonable cost, the United States pays much more and gets much less. Uh, you know, some people have said to me, gee, health care for everybody, that's un-American. No, I think what's un-American is paying more than the French do and getting less for it. That's not a good deal. So if we did come up with a method to cover every American with health insurance, some kind of coverage that they could afford. Healthcare is not free. It's never going to be free, but it's got to be set at a price that people can afford. They can go to the doctor and we have a better health outcome for our whole population. Cynthia, as you know, if you look at the U.S. compared to other wealthy countries with high quality healthcare systems, we spend a lot more in the U.S. So per person, per capita in the U.S., we're spending more than twice as much as places like the UK, Japan, Australia, France, Canada. What's going on with the cost of healthcare in the US? Sure. So, you know, when you think about healthcare costs, um, like any other good or service, it's a function of both price and use or price and quantity. Um, you know, a way to think about it is if I'm going to the grocery store and want to buy 10 apples, my total cost will be like the price per apple times the number of apples I'm buying. And, you know, with healthcare, it's the same thing as the price of a hospital stay times the number of hospital stays. And that all adds up together um, with hospitals, doctors, prescription drugs to add up to our total healthcare costs in the U.S., which um, is about double what a lot of comparable countries spend on average, both per person and as a share of the economy. Um, so why is that? Um, and so you know, there's there's been different theories out there. You know, maybe Americans are just less healthy. Maybe, um, you know, we just like to use more healthcare because that's what we value. Maybe we value that kind of high cost technology. So when you look at um, how much healthcare Americans use compared to other countries, we actually don't really, by the measures that are available, we don't really use any more healthcare than other countries do. On average, you know, looking at um, other wealthy nations, that's kind of the comparison I'm making. Um, you know, this might be some things that we use more of and some things we use less of. But on average, the hospital stays in the U.S. are actually shorter and we have fewer physician visits than comparably wealthy and large countries do. On the other hand, uh, the price of a hospital stay is much, much higher on average in the U.S. than it is in other countries. So... It is the prices of the hospital stays, the doctor visits, the prescription drugs that we purchase in the U.S. that is really driving the cost difference much more than any difference in utilization between uh, the U.S. and other countries. And in particular, when you look at it by type of service, um, it's, it's really the hospitals 
that that's where the bulk of the dollars are. So it's, um, I mean, we pay more for the same prescription drugs than other countries do. We pay more for doctors than other countries do. But um, when you look at kind of where the dollars are going, most of the difference is in hospital prices. Um, I had breast cancer and a mastectomy and a woman who was sick at the same time that I was, she did not have reconstructive surgery. She had a mastectomy and was released on the same day. And and so you said that hospital stays are shorter, but I thought that that was driven kind of by health insurance companies being awful and forcing, you know, so you have a baby and then the next day they like kind of throw you and the baby out as long as everybody's kind of moderately healthy. Um, so uh, is that is that why? Why are our hospital stays shorter? It's a it's a cost containment strategy, certainly. I mean, so one thing that's difficult to measure when it comes to price and utilization and when it comes to healthcare is that one thing that's hard to distinguish is service intensity, which is like basically like you can stay in the hospital for one day, but get a whole ton of services mm-hmm. delivered to you in that day, you know, which is kind of what happened to your friend, um, you know, or you could have the same service delivered over the course of a longer stay, you know, so the the length of stay is an imperfect measure when it comes to um, looking at healthcare utilization. It's just one of many measures that we can look at to see kind of how much healthcare are people using in the U.S. versus other countries. There's other ways to look at it too. Um, it's it's hard to do these measures internationally, but to get also to your point about why why do we have shorter hospital stays? That is a cost containment measure. It is you know insurance companies are trying to control costs by limiting how long you are in the hospital. Well, as Cynthia said, we pay more for everything than all the other developed democracies, everything in healthcare. Um, and I think there are three reasons why Americans pay more. One, our system uh, discourages people to go to the doctor early. Everyone knows that healthcare works best and is cheapest if you can get at that ailment early and provide quick treatment. Uh, the health minister of Great Britain, a guy named John Reed, uh, gave me an example once. I asked him, why do you cover everybody? I mean, anybody can go to the doctor for free in Britain. You don't even pay one pound. And he gave me this example. He says, well, you take a gas station attendant, a petrol attendant, or a convenience store clerk, a hotel maid. with If she has no health insurance, she feels a vague pain on the right side of her abdomen. Well, you know, and with no health insurance, she's not going to go to the doctor. That would cost 120 bucks. She doesn't have that. In Britain, she would go to the doctor. He'd say, oh, gee, you have an infection in your appendix. Take this penicillin. It's free. And she'd be treated. That cost maybe what cost the British system maybe 80 bucks for that visit. In America, she waits three months. Her appendix bursts. She's in the emergency room. That's a $36,000 procedure that somebody's got to pay for. Uh, because people don't go to the doctor uh, early, we end up spending much more for the same for the same ailment that other countries do. That's problem one. Problem two is the enormous administrative confusion of our system. Um, in other countries, no matter how you organize it, there tends to be one set of rules, one set of forms, and one set of prices for every medical procedure. In America, we have thousands of different forms, thousands of different sets of rules. I live in Colorado, five and a half million people. We have 365 different insurance plans. So if you're running a hospital in Colorado, 
you have a giant room full of forms. I was on the board of the University of Colorado Hospital. We have a team that did hernia repair. Uh, it's based, you know, every every patient's a little different, but it's basically the same procedure done in the same room by the same team. We were doing, you know, 12 a day. We were doing about 60 a week, and we got 60 different prices. Every time that procedure was done, somebody had to dig through and find out which form and which rule applied. Um, you could design this much more intelligently, and you wouldn't need all these people. When I was on the board of that hospital, we moved the hospital. The U.S. government gave us an old army base, and we moved the whole medical school and hospital system up to this. It was a big job. And when I was on the board, every, every three months or so, we would open some new building, you know, and they'd cut a ribbon and serve cake and wine. It was quite pleasant. And one day, uh, the board was invited to an opening, and the dean cut the ribbon and gave a speech. And it was a six-story building, very attractive six-story building. And I went up to the dean and said, uh, uh, what are we going to treat in this building? He said, oh, nothing. This is the billing office. 175 people are going to work in this six-story building just to do the billing for our university hospital. That doesn't happen in Germany, France, Britain, Japan, or Australia. They have it better organized. So that's the second reason. And the third reason is the negotiating clout, the market clout in our system is on the side of the providers. Um, if you want to sell insurance in Denver, Colorado, health insurance in Denver, Colorado, you have to have St. Joe's Hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital in your plan. No company would take your insurance if you didn't cover St. Joseph's. And St. Joe's knows that. So they negotiate enormous prices. I don't know if you noticed, but in the Wall Street Journal the other day, they had a story about the cost of a C-section, a fairly standard uh, OBGYN procedure in one hospital, in one hospital in California, the price for C-section ranged from $6,200 to $89,000. Same procedure, same doctors and nurses, but because they could gouge the insurance companies to pay $89,000, they did because all the negotiating clout is on the side of the providers. There's one insurer in America that really has the clout to negotiate prices, and that's Medicare. And Medicare is the one that pays the lowest in almost every case. Hospitals take it because they need that business. In Germany and France and the Netherlands, uh, other countries, the payer has the clout. The payer says to the hospital, all right, I'll pay you $6,200 for that C-section, and it gets done. So because the market clout is on the provider side in America, we end up paying more. Okay, so the title of this episode is Universal Healthcare Pros and Cons. So we've already talked about the benefits of price controls in universal healthcare systems, uh, allowing for the government or for a single payer to negotiate the costs, brings down prices. But are there cons to that approach? Are there cons to having that as your price control mechanism? Sure. So, um, and I would say that you know, you can achieve universal health care without a single payer. Um, you can achieve you can achieve 100% health insurance coverage through either private insurers or multiple, you know, government payers or some combination thereof. Um, but when it comes to either single payer or significantly more government regulation of health care, um, I think the thing that 
is the big downside is that uh, in many people's view, you would have the government making decisions about what can or cannot be covered. You know, he, here in the U.S., we do ration healthcare. Um, it's just a matter of, of cost more than kind of, you know, government regulation. So we ration healthcare based on your ability to pay for it, um, which is a function both of, of your income and your generosity of your healthcare coverage that you have. Um, but in other countries, the rationing happens more through government decision-making about what should be covered. Um, that's not universally true. I mean, there, there, there are countries like in Canada where you have universal coverage for most major medical care, but for prescription drug coverage, that's separate and you have to pay for that separately, like through a private um, or through some other mechanism. So, you know, not everything is covered under single payer necessarily. You have to, the government also would make decisions about what is in this like basket of goods, so to speak, or what is in this kind of basic health plan that must be covered by the government versus um, where private supplemental coverage might come into. Well, one downside of better control over costs would be that we pay doctors and hospitals less and maybe people won't want to become doctors. Uh, you know, it, uh, the kind of person who can get in medical school in the United States, pretty smart college grad, could be a lawyer, could be a broker, you know, could, there, there are a lot of things you could do other than go to medical school for four years and then have four years of internship before you can start your business. So. It may be that some people would be turned away if we didn't pay them enough. I'll give you an example. I addressed, I addressed the American College of Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm a snowboarder, so I need these guys. I've broken elbows. I've broken knees. I love orthopedic surgeons. They've been good to me. And I was giving a talk, and in the middle of my thoughtful, carefully planned speech, some guy shouts out, I was talking about Obamacare, and this doc shouts out, you're going to cut my fees. And they started arguing with each other. I was supposed to be speaking. And these orthopods, you know, they know what they're like. And uh, so as a joke, the guy says, you're going to cut my fees, which is probably true. And as a joke, I said to them, yeah, some of you guys are going to have to get by on 450000 a year. And they booed me. They hissed. Because orthopedic surgeons make more than 450000 a year. Now, if you take some smart young person who wants, you know, is good at carpentry, wants to be an orthopedic surgeon in medical school, and said to that 25-year-old, well, you know, you're only going to make 250000 a year as an orthopod, I bet they'd still do it. I bet they'd still do it. I don't think we have to pay these enormous fees. But it is possible that we would discourage some people from going into medicine, and we need doctors. America is under doctors for population relative to other countries. So we need our smart young people to go into medical care, and maybe they wouldn't if they weren't paid enough. If the hospitals did, couldn't charge $89,000 for a $6,000 procedure, well, maybe they wouldn't build that new wing. Maybe they'd have less facilities or they wouldn't have such fancy equipment in the NICU or something. So you might lose something through lower fees. I guess that would be the con. But I think, I personally believe we could pay significantly less than we do now and still have excellent health care for everybody.
A real quick follow-up question. Do you think it's possible to reform the system and make the costs lower without reforming the cost of medical school and the cost of college and the cost of actually becoming a doctor? This is a common uh, kind of rebuttal when we talk about how prices for healthcare or doctor salaries, for example, are much higher in the U.S. than they are in other countries. There's two common rebuttals to that. One is, well, in the U.S., we have to pay so much more for college and medical school than other countries do, which is true. Um, and the other rebuttal is about um, the cost of malpractice insurance, which we can maybe come back to. But to stick with the cost of education, um, it's it's actually pretty simple math when you think about it. Like if um, if an orthopedic surgeon is making half a million dollars a year for the entirety of their career, which might be 30 years, um, they're probably honestly making more than that um, <laughs> by the end of their career. But let's just keep the math simple. Um the differential in cost of medical school between the U.S. and other countries is not half a million dollars times 30 years. Um, it is like it is higher. You know, you might like I mean, I, I'll just throw a random number out there. Let's say that you spend let, let's say hypothetically you spent four hundred thousand dollars going to medical school and undergrad and paying for all of your uh, living expenses and everything that 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 costs spread out over the course of your career is much, 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 much smaller than the differential income, in the, you know, the higher income over the course of one's career in the U.S. compared to other countries. And I mean, you can you can think about that just intuitively, but also it's also possible to kind of control for this in studies of um, international studies comparing uh, what is driving the cost of healthcare in the U.S. compared to other countries. And um there was one that was interesting that was done by Sherry Gleed and Miriam Lawson at Columbia uh, several years ago that controlled for the cost of malpractice insurance and uh, medical school and found that even after controlling for that, uh, doctors, particularly specialists in the U.S., are paid significantly more than in other countries. I, I do have a follow-up question to that then, which is with all of the advancements in medical technology I would assume that that then is more expensive. And I mean, we happen to live in this part of the country where we're not near any big cities. And so attracting doctors and surgeons to our area demands, you know, those fancy buildings that TR was sort of mentioning, you know, like so that I would imagine that would drive up the costs as well. Yeah, there's kind of a saying in, in healthcare that the most expensive piece of equipment at a hospital is, is not the MRI or the CAT scan. It's the um, construction truck outside building a new wing. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, medical school ought to be free. And we could pay the tuition for every medical student and every nursing student and every chiropractic student in America for about one quarter of 1% of what we pay for healthcare over time, every year. And then these people wouldn't have to charge these enormous fees or demand uh, high pay from the hospital to pay off these huge loans. Um, I spent a lot of time in East Asia, and I'm on the East Asia Graduate School Advisory Council of the United States, and we go visit these PhD students in Chinese history or Japanese poetry and stuff like that. And these students are writing dissertations on Ming Dynasty pottery or 
Tokugawa era social structure in Japan. This is important stuff, but they don't pay a dime. They're all of them. Their education is free and they have a stipend to do this. Well, fine, that's a good thing to do, but let's do it for our doctors. And then they don't have to demand these high, this high salary. The guy could move to Shippensburg and open an office and charge reasonable fees. Uh, and not have to pay this huge debt. So I think that's an important change to make. And there are there are no medical schools that are offering their education free uh, out of a sense of duty, out of a sense that maybe this is a way to get to lower fees. I think this notion is going to spread. Um, and eventually, I think the government is going to pick up the cost for every medical student in America, which we ought to do. I have to say, I'm, a, I'm married to a Japanese historian, so I appreciate that um, <laughs> comparison. And my, my husband does not make $400,000 a year with his PhD. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of other professions that require significant education um, and, uh, you know, and don't, and don't yield the same kind of um, guaranteed high salary at the other end of it. Um, but... Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not opposed to, um, by any means, opposed to lowering the cost of education in the U.S., whether it's across the board or in particular for medical school. Um, I'm just saying that it's, I think it, if the question is, is it possible? I think, yes, um, it's possible through price regulation. Um, would it make it easier to lower the cost of medical school? Would there be less resistance? Probably. Um, I think that would probably not hurt. Can we talk about one of the fears that many Americans have about moving towards government-run universal health care? And that is an increase in taxes. So I think the assumption is among all of us that taxes would actually increase if you were to have government-run universal health care. But the hope is, at least if you were to adopt a model like the UK or like Germany, that because premium costs would come down so much and because out-of-pocket costs would come down so much, that you would actually be saving money despite the fact that you're paying more in terms of taxes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a balancing act between, um, you know, there's, we actually have an interactive tool on, on our website. I'll give a little plug healthcare or sorry, healthsystemtracker.org. Um, and there's an interactive tool that lets you kind of see, including taxes and premiums and on pocket costs, what people and different incomes and family sizes pay, um, in total for healthcare. Um, and so it kind of lets you imagine, well, if my premiums and deductibles go down, then yes, I would have more of my you know, household budget left over for paying higher taxes. But at the same time, I would also, I would say, first of all, that as a, on a per capita basis and as a share of our economy, the U.S. already spends pretty close to what Australia spends on public, like for, for our public payers, like what, what we spend on Medicare and Medicaid is not too different from what Australia pays um, or what other countries pay to cover their entire populations. You know, like we're, we're covering a fraction of our population with Medicare and Medicaid and some other public programs. Um, but for almost as much other countries are sorry for just a little bit more other countries are are covering their whole population so it really does come down to again price of healthcare services and what you're paying for those healthcare services but i would say i i i just don't think it's realistic to think that we're going to implement a single payer system and slash provider payment in half you know like i think 
barring some sort of revolution or war or some sort of other kind of dramatic change in our society, I don't see um, I don't see us just implementing a single payer system and, and overnight saying, okay, doctors, hospitals, you all get paid half of what you were getting paid before. Um, you know, we even if we did move to some sort of single payer or universal healthcare system, I think yeah, maybe you could cut payments a bit, but I don't know if you could get away with slashing them in half. And so then it might become more of a question of how much do you let costs grow over time, um, more so than doing a one-time payment cut. Um, although to bring the U.S. in line with other countries, we'd have to do both. Well, I think a government-run healthcare system for everybody would definitely cost less. I mean, you look at every other country where they do it, the countries where they do do it that way, it definitely costs less. The British have a taxpayer covered system. It covers everybody. They have longer life expectancy and somewhat better recovery rates from disease than the United States does. They spend 44% as much per capita as we do and everybody's covered. So I think it would definitely be cheaper. I think uh, one of the concerns is uh, I don't want the government intruding in my doctor's office. Bug off, you know, you're too much in my life already. Um, my feeling is I think I'd rather have the government in my doctor's office than some executive at United Healthcare in Minnetonka, Minnesota, telling my doctor what she can prescribe or what she can do. Somebody's going to be in there worrying about costs. Um, and Cynthia says we couldn't get away with cutting costs in half. I'm not sure I agree with that. Costs are way high in America. Um, I don't think, uh, well, for example, the Hospital Corporation of America is a big for-profit health insurance company. A hospital company owns more hospitals than anybody else. They have about 21 hospitals in my state of Colorado. These are huge operations. I don't think HCA is going to shut them down if we cut their fees. They'll complain and go to Congress and everything. But if we cut their fees, they're not going to close those hospitals. I mean, these are community organizations. They're important. And if they did, if they cut their hospital in Longmont, Colorado, either the city or somebody in Longmont would reopen that hospital and operate at lower fees. I mean, not make as much profit. So I, I think... I, I'd go further than Cynthia and say, yeah, we could sharply cut costs, in, particularly in the hospital business, but also in doctor care, um, and still have a robust, large healthcare system for Americans. Could, could a hospital in the U.S. have its payments cut and still function? Absolutely. You know, like it, if you give a hospital a budget, it'll work within that budget. Um, Will politicians in the U.S. cut the hospital's budget in half? That's that's where I'm kind of going with this, and and we have a very recent example of something where it was even it, it's just so small in comparison to this, which is surprise billing. Um, and so surprise billing was recognized, um, you know, recently by both parties as being a big problem in our healthcare system, where you go to a hospital that's in network for a surgery that your surgeon is supposed to be in your network, in your provider network. And somehow maybe the anesthesiologist who you get assigned to in the last minute is not in your provider network. So your insurance company has no 
um, obligation to pay that anesthesiologist and the anesthesiologist can charge you whatever they want and they can send you a bill for $40,000 or a hundred thousand, you know, just hypothetically, let's, let's say, and, and that's not within the contract between your insurance company and the hospital. This is called surprise billing. So this is where someone like through no fault, no fault of their own gets this huge medical bill. And so the government recognizes this is a problem, both Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and the house came together to try to solve this problem very recently. Um, but then it came down to who pays the insurance company or the doctors, you know, do the doctors have to accept the insurance company's rate or does the insurance company have to pay whatever the doctor wants? And through a whole lot of back and forth, um, and we can kind of point fingers at whoever you want to, it was not, it was, this did not fall along party lines. I'll just say that. Um, Democrats, and Republicans both had a very hard time telling hospitals they were going to be paid less or telling doctors, sorry, in this case, it was doctors that they would get paid less. Um, and, and this is such a small scale compared to what we're talking about. I mean, this is, these are big bills for certain patients, but when you add up all the dollars here, it's small, small, you know, pocket change compared to implementing a single payer program and slashing payment rates. You know, I think another very big fear that Americans have is having the government control our medicine and and possibly our records. And, and there's a great fear from a lot of the public about having their privacy rights, particularly when it comes to, you know, very personal things that your medical records have. Um, is it, Does that play a role here, too? And uh, is there anything that the government could do as we try and get healthcare for as many Americans as possible to alleviate some of those concerns. Yeah, well, look, I, I run into this fear all the time when I'm speaking around the country, and I understand that some government bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. is going to tell my doctor whether she can cut me or not or what, what procedure she can do. Um, yeah, I understand that fear. Uh, personally, uh, what I answer to people is somebody is making that ruling. It's either a government official, some payer, or uh, an executive at a health insurance uh, company. And at least in government, if I don't like their decision, I can do something about it. I can throw that guy out. So that's my argument. I, I understand that concern. I think the answer to it is a government insurance plan called Medicare. Medicare is the federal government insurance plan that covers everybody over 65 and people with disabilities. Um, it covers people with renal failure because the renal failure community had political clout. They could go to Congress and get any coverage they wanted, and they chose Medicare. And it turns out in surveys, Medicare has the highest rate of satisfaction of any insurance plan in the United States, much more than the private insurers. Medicare has much broader choice. All the private insurers have these narrow networks where they dictate the hospital you can see, the doctor you can see, or the hospital you can go to. Medicare covers all of them. And, and so lots of people, it's very common to hear people over 65 say, Medicare is the best health insurance I ever had. In my case, you know, I worked for the Washington Post for many years, very generous company fabulous health insurance, and I'm on Medicare now, and it's better insurance than I had. So I think that's the answer to the fear. When people get on uh, uh, government insurance, uh, 
in Medicare, they really like it. So Americans hate socialized medicine until they get it, and then they like it. Uh, I also use the VA, which, of course, is, is the British system. It's government doctors and government hospitals and government nurses and no bills. I get excellent treatment at the Veterans Administration. So, uh, hey, uh, socialized medicine is terrible until you get it, and then people like it. I also think this shows the power of, of big kidney, right? I mean, if, if, you know, if they have that great lobbying uh, power right there to get renal failure covered, uh, yeah. I think that shows big kidneys right there for you. All right. Let's talk about another fear that Americans have about universal health care, and that is long wait times. Is it true or is it not true that if you have a universal health care system run by the government, you will have to wait longer to see your doctor than we do in the U.S. Yeah, so this this kind of goes back to that question of rationing too. Um, you know, who's doing the rationing or what mechanism is the rationing happening through? Is it happening through, you know, cost or your ability to pay versus is it happening through the government deciding whether you should, you really need that care now or later or never? Um and so um, it's actually the Commonwealth Fund has done some really good studies, like surveys internationally, um, where they've um, they've surveyed the population, you know, just everyday people in the U.S. and um, about a dozen other similarly large and wealthy countries. And they asked um, the last time you needed to go to the doctor urgently, like within, you know, where you had an urgent uh, need for care. Were you able to get seen within a day? of your need. Um, and in that question, the U.S. performed pretty average among other countries, if not even a little bit below average. Um, then the second question they asked was, the last time you wanted to see a specialist, were you able to get seen within two weeks or something like that? Um, for that question, in the U.S., people are able to see specialists more quickly than on average than in some other countries. Um, so, we actually don't do all that great with getting care quickly when we need it, um, you know, for, for a more kind of urgent, maybe not, may not be the right word, but, you know, like for, for something that you want to get seen for pretty quickly, um, that's maybe a more simple concern. Um, we, we don't actually do that great um, at wait times. It's where the U.S. is better is what is where it comes to specialists. And part of that is that we have more specialists than primary care doctors um, compared to other countries. Um, and also that's a that's that's a function of using costs to ration care as instead of uh, kind of this government deciding whether you need it or not or when. Um, and so um yeah, and, and and then when you look at kind of the correlation between wait times and satisfaction with one's healthcare system, um, there's not really a strong correlation there. You know, like a lot of times people think like like is is wait this this issue of wait times has been pointed to, but while people must not be satisfied with their with their healthcare system if they're having to wait a long time for a specialist, um, that seems to be the implication in the U.S. But actually, when you look at even, you know, countries like Britain, where you might have to wait quite a while to get a specialist appointment, people love their healthcare system there. You know, it's, um, it's not, there's not really a, it, the, the correlation is more about how quickly you can get the care that you need right now, like the more urgent stuff, that's where you see a stronger correlation between people's satisfaction with their healthcare system. Right. So on the health system tracker that Cynthia was talking about earlier from the Kaiser Family Foundation, 
if you go to healthsystemtracker.org, they actually have all these data. And so they have wait times. It's the percentage of adults who made a same day or next day appointment when they needed care. In the U.S., 51% of adults said they could get a same day or next day appointment. Uh, Germany did better at 53%, France 56%, the UK 57%. So the idea that if you have a government-run universal healthcare system, you're just destined to wait longer to see your doctor, it's not true. In some countries, it is true. Sweden does worse at 49%. Canada does worse at 43%. But it's not true in all countries. As I said, Germany does better, France, the UK. So it really depends upon the system. It's not just sort of universally the case that if you have government-run healthcare, you'll have to wait longer. And that's, again, from healthsystemtracker.org, which is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which uh, Cynthia works at. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's important to state every country rations healthcare. There's no country in the world that can afford to provide everything that modern medicine knows how to provide. The Mideast Oil Emirates, they ration healthcare. Singapore rations healthcare. And the United States, the world's richest nation, rations healthcare. We just do it differently. Uh, other countries, as Cynthia said, keep people waiting or they have certain procedures they just won't pay for. Um, in the United States, some people have the kind of insurance that pays for everything. And some people get almost nothing until they're sick enough to go to the emergency room. Uh, to me, that's kind of a cruel and unfair way to ration care, but we ration care. And one of the ways we keep costs down is all the people who don't get care until they're really sick. And as I said earlier, that's a stupid way to ration because in the end, we end up paying for those people in the emergency room. If you don't have health insurance or if your deductible is so high that you don't go to the doctor, well, then your doctor becomes the emergency room's most expensive possible way to provide health care. So everybody rations care. We just do it in a cooler way than other countries. If we had universal health insurance, whether private or public or Medicare for all, we'd still have to ration care because we can't afford to do everything. But at least it would be fairer. I think many Americans are afraid that if there's universal health care, that the quality of care is going to go down. Do you think that the quality of health care would go down? And um, if so, why? And if not, why not? Uh, well, Cynthia mentioned the Commonwealth Fund in New York. This is a private organization, and they issue what they call report cards on the leading countries in the world on health care. The most recent one I saw was for 2019. They looked at 11 rich countries, and of those in terms of outcomes, that is, in terms of successful results of medical intervention, the United States ranked last, 11 out of 11 countries. The other countries have better health outcomes, and look around the world, all the rich countries have longer life expectancy in the United States. Almost all of them have better recovery rates from most major diseases. I think the U.S., ranked first in the world in recovery rates after a diagnosis of breast cancer. Uh, according to the Commonwealth Fund, I think we're second in the world for prostate cancer. So for these politically important diseases, we're good at them. But there are a lot of things where quality is lower than in other countries. I think if we had an organized, comprehensive system of care for everybody, 
um, as the Germans do, as the Japanese do, we could have, or the French, we could have their standard of healthcare, which has higher quality, better outcomes than the United States. Uh, but as you say, Ali, um, when I talk about universal healthcare, or say Medicare for all, the people who really oppose this are seniors. The people who are on Medicare and like it, and they're afraid there's going to be a long line at their doctor's office if everybody else got it. And I kind of say, see, don't you want your grandchildren to have good health care? Well, yeah, but I don't want to have to wait all day kind of thing. So, um, and, and as a matter of fact, in, in many countries, there are some countries where you have to wait a long time to see a doctor. But in many countries, Germany, Japan, as Cynthia said, the time to see a doctor is shorter than in the United States. So, um, yeah, just to follow up on what TR said, um, we we also have a similar kind of um, tracking tool uh, that this time I will not mess up the name of it, healthsystemtracker.org, um, which it has a dashboard where you can see all of these indicators too um, across comparably large and wealthy countries. And like TR said, in the U.S., we have shorter life expectancy, higher rates of disease burden, you know, basically worse healthcare outcomes, no matter how you slice it, except for cancer, uh, where we do do better, especially breast cancer, um, marginally better, you know, not, not radically better. But, um, uh, there's also, so that's kind of like healthcare outcomes. You can also take a step back and look at, well, you know, maybe our healthcare outcomes are worse because we sit around eating potato chips and watching um, HDTV all day. And, um, you know, speaking personally, that might be true, but um, it's, <laughs> that, so that could influence our healthcare outcomes too. Like, let's look at what's actually happening in hospitals. Is the care that hospitals are giving still on par with what hospitals in other countries are doing? And there you can look at things like readmission rates. So like after someone gets discharged, do they have to come right back into the hospital, you know, shortly thereafter? Or how often do they die within a few days after leaving the hospital? Or how often do surgical items get left inside of your body? Or, you know, like other kinds of measures of quality. And there you can see, you know, it's not it's not always clean cut. But the U.S. doesn't really do that great <laughs> in, in some of those areas, too. Um, we have more retained surgical devices in our bodies on average than um, some other countries do. So, you know, it's um, some of it, yes, could be like lifestyle or, you know, other kinds of factors that I wouldn't I wouldn't just blame on individuals. It's also maybe corn subsidies or other things that are happening in the U.S. that we won't even go into. But um it's uh, it also if you just look within a hospital, it's not always that much better in the U.S., sometimes worse, too. Whenever I see debates about universal health care, particularly for politicians who are opposed to universal health care, I often see them bring up Canada. And there are a lot of virtues of the Canadian system, but there also are a lot of ways in which the Canadian system doesn't compare so well to the U.S., but I hardly see the UK brought up in these debates, and I wonder if that's intentional or not, because the UK does compare very well to the US system on a number of measures. So why do you guys think that is? Well, uh, yeah, Americans worry about long waiting times, about rationing health care in Canada. And it's true, there are long waiting times in some provinces of Canada. Canada is actually 14 different health insurance systems run by the province or the territory. 
some of them have shorter waiting times uh, and better outcomes in the U.S. And uh, Ontario, the biggest one, has longer waiting times than the U.S. My my personal guru, Uwe Reinhardt, a healthcare economist, was asked in Congress once, uh, you know, he was a professor at the university. They said, well, would you rather live in Canada and get care there? And Uwe's answer was, you know, um, as a professor at an Ivy League university, or if I were the CEO of 7-Eleven, I'd rather live in the United States. But if I were sweeping the halls at the university or pumping gas at a 7-Eleven, I'd rather live in Canada because average people there do get fine health care for very low cost. And yeah, sometimes they have to wait, sometimes they don't. Uh, I'll tell you my personal experience. I have very good health insurance here in the United States. I'm on Medicare. And, you know, my hip started to hurt. I went to a doctor. He said, yeah, we got to do a hip replacement. Uh, this guy had read my book about healthcare around the world. He said, you're going to love this. The hip replacement was invented in Britain on the National Health Service. I don't know if you know that, but that was the first place they did that procedure. Um, and he said, you're going to love this. You're going to, and, and, you know, this is a very good procedure. It works. Let's schedule it. And the first time he could do it was 91 days later, three months. That's as long as I would have waited in Canada. So, yes, it's true. People wait in Canada, in some parts of Canada. Um, but is it more than in the United States? I don't know. Uh, but if I had the same procedure in Japan, in Sweden, in France, in Austria, I would have waited much less time than you had to do in Canada. So, yeah, I, I see the Canada example. Um, you know, there's, there's this term snowbirds. This is supposed to be Canadians who come south to the United States to get their health care. Some do. I'm sure some do. But John Hopkins did a study on it and found the rate of Americans going north to buy drugs in Canada was twice as high as the rate of Canadians coming south. So, um, yeah, people use that. And there is some basis for complaint about Canada. I think the reason is Canada is too stingy. They don't spend enough. Uh, last time I checked, they were spending about 10.5% of GDP on healthcare. We're spending 19% of GDP on healthcare and still don't cover everybody. They, if they put a little more money into their system, uh, they'd have less waiting time. Just to, to play devil's advocate, I think the reason we do look to Canada um as as a comparison, like I think there's reasons to do that. One is they have a, a federal government similar to the U.S., where you know there's like one of you know one of the the roadblocks that we've discussed before was political interest groups, but there's also our federalist healthcare system where there's limited you know basically that health a lot of healthcare regulation and lawmaking is supposed to happen at the state level instead of at the federal level, and so people look to Canada as an example. Of, of a political system that's maybe more similar to the U.S. than some other countries. Um, and their, you know, their single payer system started with various different, um, like, quote, unquote, state, states, you know, kind of creating their single payer systems, which then became federal. Um, and also their transition to single payer happened much more recently in history compared to a lot of other countries. So, um the, the Canadian, I, I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was in the 1960s when the Canadian system started, TR may be able to interrupt and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was in the 1960s when the Canadian system became single payer, whereas in 
um, you know, Germany, it was like the late 1800s, I think. And then the UK, it was early, you know, I think around World War. Yeah, that's two. right. So uh, it started in one province, the Saskatchewan, in 1944. Uh, it was successful. Other provinces started to copy it. But it wasn't until 1964 that it became a national system. So, um, so you know, and then also there's like, you know, people say, you know, the demographics might be similar or they're kind of like, you know, at least it's on the same continent, like the ge geography might be more similar. Like we're a larger country that's more spread out than a lot of European countries are. You know, maybe there's there's some reasons to look at Canada as opposed to the UK. What do you think are the largest obstacles to improving our healthcare system, lowering costs for Americans, making us a healthier country with a better healthcare system? Do you think it's, I mean, I'm a political scientist, so I look to institutions and then outside actors and I wonder about, you know, interest groups and lobbyists and then also wonder about where ideology runs in here. If there's a, you know, a partisan element to this. What do you think are the biggest obstacles facing healthcare reform today? Um, I think money and politics, uh, our system is not really working. As we've said, we pay more than all the other rich countries for healthcare and have worse results. Uh, but in our system, there are some big winners. The private health insurance industry, the for-profit hospital industry, the pharmaceutical industry, um, certain specialties of doctors are doing great in our system, and they can use part of the money they earn to buy Congress, to uh, make contributions and buy power in our state legislators and Congress, and that's the biggest obstacle to change. One of the things all healthcare economists agree on about the U.S. healthcare system is it's resistant to change. It's very hard to fix. We can identify the problems. We've just done it on this show. It's hard to fix because the people winning in the current system are going to fight that change. A very good example is Obamacare. Um, in Obamacare, they were going to, the, the plan was to subsidize health insurance premiums so people could buy health insurance from the private companies and then provide a public insurance company, which was called the public option. Uh, well, the health insurers loved the subsidized payment for their plans. That was great for them. They didn't want the public option. They didn't want the government uh, competition. So they killed it. Their lobbyists killed it. Uh, another aspect, the interesting aspect of Obamacare is uh, United States insurance companies have the highest administrative costs in the world. Uh, they spend far more of your premium money on salaries and advertising and paperwork uh, than any other country. And in the first version of Obamacare, uh, the bill said they can't spend more than 12% of your premium on administrative costs. They got to spend at least 88% paying doctor bills. Well, their lobbyists went in and fought that. So today they could, they're allowed under the law to spend 20% of your premium dollars on their salaries on their sales trips to Hawaii and stuff like that, and they do. Uh, that's lobbying cloud, and that's why it's so hard to change. The big winners are going to fight change, and in America, if you have money, you can win legislatively. I'll say I'm gonna I'm gonna say something really unpopular, probably to most of your listeners, <laughs> um, uh, which is that 
you know, I think I think in the United States we have a, a tendency to villainize health insurance companies. Um, they are the the easy target for um, so much of our anger here. Um, and I will also preface this by saying I work at the Kaiser Family Foundation. It is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the health insurance company. Um, so I do not work for an insurance company. I never have. I might never. I don't know. Um, but, um, so I'm not saying this as 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 a tool of the insurance industry. But um, I, the more I study this, and the more I learn about what is driving our healthcare costs, and also what, where the politics are playing out, the less I blame insurance companies. Um, and. Part of that is, you know, yes, of course, insurance companies in the U.S., especially for-profit ones, make profits, and they and and that is something that doesn't exist in a lot of other countries. And um, and yes, there, that is part of where the costs in the U.S. are going. But when you look at the total excess costs of what the U.S. spends compared to other countries, insurance overhead and profits is such a small portion of that compared to our excess spending on hospitals. Um, hospitals and doctors, but in particular hospitals, um, that is where the money is going. And when you also look at industry group opposition um, to universal health coverage, you know, insurance companies have been, yes, I, I think insurance companies have opposed public options for sure. Although in Washington state, they recently created a public option where they allowed private insurers to offer it. And um, and so there are, and, and there are like several several private insurance companies decided to offer a public option. Um, and you also have other examples of this, like in Medicare. There's Medicare Advantage, which is run by private plans, and you have in Medicaid, you have um, private plans operating managed care uh, for the state. Um, so there are plenty of examples where you can have these kind of public-private partnerships, um, where insurance companies are not always completely against the expansion of a public program, because in many cases, it can actually create new business for them. Um, but where you do see a lot of um, industry opposition, too, that I think a lot of people in the U.S., like the general public may not realize this, is that there's strong opposition from doctors, some doctors groups and hospital groups, too. And so I, I'm... I'm mostly saying I'm not saying this to let insurance companies off the hook necessarily, but also that um, I think a lot of our blame for the problems that happen in the healthcare system can be misplaced if it's only put on insurance companies. Yeah, um, there's in principle, there's nothing wrong with a private health insurance company. In fact, many countries have them. Germany has 220 health insurance companies, and interestingly, any German can choose any one of them. And if you don't like your plan, you can drop it on 30 days notice and buy another one and they can't raise your rates. Americans don't get that. The Netherlands, uh, Japan, many countries have private health insurance. Here's the difference. There's only one country that allows health insurance companies to make a profit, and that's the United States. In the other countries, there are private health insurers, but they're basically charities. Their goal in, in the world is to get people health care and pay for it. Um, in the United States, we our four giant health insurers all make a profit. And if you talk to economists around the world, they say that's wrong because there's a fundamental conflict 
the way you make a profit in health insurance is by not paying people's medical bills. You collect a premium every month and then find ways not to pay. Well, that guy wasn't in my network or that uh, treatment wasn't covered. Um, so I think we could have health insurance companies. I don't have any problem with that, but they should be charities. They should be nonprofit. Um, and interestingly, some of the nonprofits act like for-profit companies that are just as cruel as the other ones. Um, I, in my speech, when I, I talk around, I, I say that I went around the world, I found this interesting thing. Health insurance doesn't have to be cruel. People can actually like their health insurer if its interest is keeping you healthy and not paying its investors a quarterly dividend. First of all, I would say that one thing that has changed with the Affordable Care Act is, is a limit on how much insurance companies can quote unquote profit. Now, it's not a direct regulation of profits, but there is the medical loss ratio rule, which requires that if insurers keep too much of their premium income as overhead or profits or some combination thereof, they have to issue a rebate back That's to the consumers. And so there, the ACA did implement this new kind of like indirect regulation of insurance company profits. Um, the ACA did not do anything to regulate hospital or uh, other kinds of provider profits. And, and what you do see in other countries that have private payers is that you see more of an there's more of a role for government in setting prices for the providers, for the doctors and the hospitals. So you can have a private payer, private insurance companies, um, but the government sets constraints uh, such that that doesn't create a system where there's runaway prices paid to hospitals and doctors or prescription drug companies. And so you, you can certainly have a private system that covers more people, costs less, um, and the, the key there is some, some form of price setting or price regulation for the provider market, too. Yeah, in Germany, for example, every two years, the insurance industry and the hospitals have a negotiation to negotiate on a new set of fees. And uh, the only way this works is the health ministry says, if you guys don't agree by December 31st, we're going to issue this set of fees. And guess what? The negotiation ends up right about there, about December 30th, every two years. Um, in Japan, the health ministry sets a fee for every procedure in Japan. Um, and that's what the health insurers agree to pay. And that's what the health, the hospitals agree to accept. Guess what? Japan has more hospital beds and more doctors per capita than the United States, even though they have these pretty tight uh, controls. I don't know if you remember in my movie, Lawrence, which you show in your class, uh, I was in a doctor's office in Japan, and he had an MRI machine. And I had just had an MRI. It crashed on my snowboard. I had an MRI of my neck in Denver, Colorado. It cost $1,230. So I said to this doc, uh, how much would it cost to do an MRI on my neck here in your office? Uh, each of my end, $99. So I said, how can you do a $1,200 procedure for $99? Well, that's the price the government has set. And guess what? Doctors do it and they still make a small profit on that procedure. So if you had to look around the world at the various universal systems and pick one to model, um, which one sticks out to you as a pretty positive model for Americans to look to? 
So I love this question because it was assigned to me in graduate school as my final exam in my <laughs> national health systems comparison class. Um, and I had a major cop out, which was all of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it's really hard because, you know, you can look at all these different measures. Like if we want a country that spends the least, um, you know, on healthcare then you might look at the UK because they're really good at containing costs and in promoting equity. Um, if you want a system that um, has you know, fast access to care, then you might choose the US um, for specialist care. Um, and so what, what this all is coming down to, you know, when we talk about the pros and cons of a universal healthcare, it comes down to balancing cost, quality, access, and affordability. And where do your own personal preferences fall in that balance is maybe a question. Um, but if you're looking for a country that has kind of an even balance across those things, um, you know, and that also might be somewhat feasible as a model, um, then, you know, I think a lot of people do look at Germany as, you know, because it's got multiple private payers, um, which is similar to the U.S., um, and it's it's tied to employment, uh, which is similar to the U.S., so that there wouldn't necessarily be as much disruption in a transition. I I don't know if I, I think I still would go for the major cop out, which is that I I think that the aspects if I was going to pick and choose at least what to apply to the U.S. healthcare system, which is kind of a theme I've been trying to get at throughout this conversation, is just to have to do something about healthcare prices. You know, we can still have private payers. We, I mean, maybe they'd be better if they were nonprofit, you know, like what TR was saying. But um, you you can have a private-based system. You can even have it tied to employment as long as there's a safety net for people who don't have employer coverage. Um, but the to get at costs, which also gets at affordability, um, we have to do something about healthcare prices. Yeah. Um, no, I'm often asked that question. Which country should we copy? When I first started doing this work, I thought the answer was pretty obvious. We should copy Germany or Japan because those are capitalist countries. They have private insurance that covers the bills, uh, private hospitals in Japan. About 99% of hospitals are private. That's much higher percentage than in the United States. And everybody's covered and they have pretty good control of costs and very good outcomes. So I thought that would be the way we would go. It's more sort of capitalistic, fits American values. But I've now decided it won't work in the United States. And the reason is uh, they have private insurance companies, but they're very heavily regulated by the government. As we said, in both countries, the health ministry basically sets the price for every procedure. It's not like insurers can negotiate. Uh, in both those countries, the insurer has to cover every hospital, every lab, every doctor, every chiropractor, every physical therapist. They're not allowed to have these narrow networks like the American insurance companies do. Insurance has to be nonprofit. In fact, in Germany, they have a very robust uh, uh, profit or margin uh, spreading system at the end of the year. If your insurance company made money, you got to pay it to a company that lost here. So, um, and uh, all these, for all these reasons, I think it wouldn't work in the United States because our insurance companies have too much clout in Congress. They, they wouldn't give up their right to earn a profit. 
they wouldn't give up their narrow networks. That's how they make a profit. And they wouldn't give up their right to negotiate some fees and have the government set the fee. So um, I don't think the German or Japanese system would work in America. So I think where we're going to end up, I think we will eventually provide health care at reasonable cost to everybody because America always does the right thing eventually. Um, I think we're going to end up with Medicare for all or some government insurance plan for all. Maybe we can't call it Medicare, AmeriCare for all or something like that. Um, and I think our new president, Joe Biden, has a system for getting there. For one thing, uh, he says he's going to lower the age of Medicare to age 60. Uh, it's now you have to be 65 to qualify for Medicare. I think that's a, a smart move, and I think we could get that through Congress. I think the insurers would accept that as long as they can still sell their supplemental plans. They don't want to cover people 60 to 65. Those people are starting to get expensive for a health insurer. And if you do that uh, and you get another, what, 17, 18 million Americans in Medicare, then maybe three years later you can reduce it to 55 and then 50 and 45. And over 20, 25 years, we would get everybody covered. I think that's how we're going to get to universal health care in America. Even though it's not as capitalistic as Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, um, the political realities, I think, are going to lead us more that way than to some kind of universal private insurance system. That's my bet. Cynthia, TR, you have been amazing guests. This has been an amazing conversation. You both do just tremendous work. So could you tell us a little bit about some of what you're doing and, and tell them where they might go to check it out? Yeah, well, um, I think I'm on this show because I wrote a book called The Healing of America, where I went around the, country, the world going to doctors and hospitals to see how other countries managed to provide better health care at lower costs in the United States. And that book, uh, through sheer luck, became a big bestseller. It's still selling pretty well. And I might point out, The Healing of America, Penguin Press, great Mother's Day giving. Be sure to run out and get one for your mom. Um, <laughs> and because that book worked, my publisher suggested that I do another around-the-world policy book. So then I looked at tax policy around the world. Uh, that book is called A Fine Mess. I, I want to say the book got very good reviews and didn't sell a copy. For some reason, nobody wanted to read about comparative tax policy. And I'm now writing another book. This is a book I've been wanting to write for about 25 years, as a matter of fact. It's about how Joseph Kennedy and Mayor Daley in Chicago stole the 1960 election for Jack Kennedy. This definitely happened. And... um Many years ago, the guy who did this work for uh, Mayor Daley in Chicago explained to me how they did it. And I've always wanted to write this book. And every time I started, I got a contract for some other book. And now, because my tax book didn't sell, no publisher is asking me to write another book. So I'm finally writing the book I want to write. And with luck, maybe that one will be out by Mother's Day of 2022. It is another great Mother's Day gift. Um. 
I don't have any books to sell. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, but uh, you can check out our uh, website. So I work at Kaiser Family Foundation. Our website is kff.org. And that's where we publish a lot of our research on the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is what I do uh, specifically there. And then we also have a partnership website that I've mentioned called healthsystemtracker.org. Um, which is kind of where these a lot of these big picture data points are, like how much we spend, what we get for how much we spend on healthcare in the U.S. compared to other countries. I, I just I first want to say, TR, I'm now worried about your health um, because I mean, if you're writing a book that's going to uncover like Kennedy stuff, like <laughs> I know that the reach is 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 minimized now, but it's not all gone. Like they're still around. It's possible that, you know, that Joe Kennedy has actually just been preserved and his head is frozen or something like just yeah. be careful. Like maybe we want to even edit this out, like just to make sure. No, that- as my as my publisher said, this book is liable to everybody under his bed. So. <laughs> all right. Well, still. Be careful on like boat trips and plane trips and don't ski. Yeah. I'm just, you know, just stay home. Like maybe, you know, maybe this is good that we're in a pandemic. Um, uh, This has been such a great conversation. Thanks to both of you for coming on and explaining this because I feel significantly smarter and also more hopeful for the future of healthcare because it sounds like, uh, it sounds like we're moving in the right directions. We've identified the problems. And I think that's kind of the first step, isn't it? Yep. We we know that we have a problem. (laughs) That is the first time. (laughs) Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. Thank you, TR. Thank you so much. Well, see, I told you my heart was healthy and happy uh, for a reason. This was a great conversation. (laughs) I loved it. It was great. They're both really, really great. They have great expertise. Um, They've been so generous with their time. That was just excellent. I learned a lot and I feel healthier for it. So, um, (laughs) Lawrence, do you want to do you want to talk about the website? Yes. Before we go, let's talk about utterlymoderate.com. So that is our website where you can find all of our episodes in the episode archive. Along with those episodes, you can also find the companion resources. So we do the best that we can during our time on our show to try to cover the topic. But there's always a much deeper dive that you can do. And that's where those resources really help. So go to utterlymoderate.com check out the episode archive and all the companion resources. There's a bunch more there as well. We have some good reads. We have some useful links. There's uh, more info about Allie and I and the research that we do. So check it out, utterlymoderate.com. Also, if you're listening, you know where to find our pod, but uh, we are on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We really appreciate you listening as always, and we look forward to talking to you again on the next episode. I believe this is the time where you say goodbye, Allie. Goodbye, Allie. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully.